We're going to continue our study today called The Road to Resurrection. And we're making our way towards Easter and looking at four stops along Jesus' road or journey to resurrection. Last week we talked about the first of those, which was that he emptied himself. And today we're going to talk about the second stop along the road to resurrection was, which was that Jesus showed us the Father. And then third, Jesus paid the penalty for my sin. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to talk about how Jesus defeated death. And so I've asked you to turn to Luke chapter 22. And we're going to begin reading at verse 42nd, uh, 40, 42nd, 47th. Luke 22, beginning at verse 47. Here we go. And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. I think most of you are familiar with this, but Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's just finished praying his heart out to the Father and saying, Father, if there's any way that this cup could pass from, from me, let it be. And then comes to the point where he says, not my will, yours be done. And then hard on the heels of that resolution on his, uh, on his part to go all the way for you and me. Then uh, Judas, uh, accompanied by some of the temple guards and Roman soldiers, uh, come to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest him. And that's what's happening here. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword his disciples that were with him? They're saying, shall we defend ourselves? Shall we defend you? And one of them, we're told, not in this passage, but in John's account of this same um, episode, we're told that this one was Peter. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest. We're also not given the servant of the high priest's name in this account, but we are in John's. And it says that the man that was the servant of the high priest was, na was named. He had a name, Malchus. He was not just some insignificant person. His name was Malchus. Peter cut off Malchus's right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. So so he's probably already being bound by the soldiers. And he says, no, permit me. And he heals Malchus's ear. He says, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple and the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you didn't try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is one of the, really one of a relatively few episodes in the life. You can imagine how difficult it would be to try to capture everything that transpired during Jesus' life and ministry. You couldn't do it. And we have, thankfully, uh, four Gospels that tell of the life and ministry of Jesus because it gives us then a, a fuller picture of what went on. And so as you can imagine, 
many of the episodes in Jesus' life are recorded by all four of the gospel writers who, they weren't just repeating the same things. They had different audiences and different purposes behind their, their, the writing of their gospel under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And because that's so, not everything is the same in each of the gospels. In fact, the relatively few of the episodes are recorded by all four gospel writers. But this is one. The episode with, in the Garden of Gethsemane, with Malchus's ear being cut off. We're even told which ear. There's something specific about this story that the Lord intended for us to know. And most of the time, we kind of skip over this as though it's an incidental event. It wasn't. It wasn't. Now, Malchus was the servant of the high priest that we're told. That doesn't mean he was the kind of servant that was sort of a slave. You know, he shined his shoes and that kind of thing. No, he served the high priest as his representative. When the high priest needed to be more than one place at once, he would send Malchus in his place. If it was something that the high priest was not really interested in doing, like tonight, the, the issue, that, the scene that we're, we just read this night, where he probably didn't want to get out of bed and tramp all the way down across town to, to Gethsemane and, and arrest Jesus, he sent Malchus in his place. You know, our, our president, the president of the United States, he doesn't attend every function where he's, he's uh, requested. He sends emissaries at times. Malchus had that kind of a position. He held a high rank in the uh, religious leadership. He was a servant of the high priest. And he was representing the power and authority of the religious establishment there in the Garden of Gethsemane as they arrested Jesus. Now Malchus... Grew, uh, he comes from this um, religious environment, this culture that shaped his thinking about God. It was, it was tough to be a Jew in those days. The law, the layers of regulations that the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders had added to the Mosaic law made it completely impossible to to even keep track of what you were supposed to do, let alone do it. And so Jewish people in those days always felt as though they were failing God. Always. Every, you know, 24-7, 365, I'm failing God. I'm missing something. And Malchus was a part of that machinery that made that happen. His understanding of God was shaped by all of this stuff. He was a perpetrator of it. He was part of the sustaining system that kept us afloat, that God was distant, God was unapproachable, angry, vengeful, needing to be appeased. I mean, the whole sacrificial system was about trying to satisfy this angry God, unbending Favoring some over others. Kind of capricious. I mean, capricious means uh, uh, unpredictable. You know, he'll do something nice for, for somebody, but not for, for others. And, you know, just whatever he feels like it at the moment. That he's uncaring. These were the ways that Malchus understood God to be. The prevailing religious concept of God. Really, not much different 
than the prevailing concepts of God in the world around us today. In fact, maybe even many of you this morning find your, found yourself, and I was going through that list of things thinking, well, that's kind of how I think about God too. But Malchus had a paradigm shift in the Garden of Gethsemane. He encountered there a man who claimed to be God but wasn't anything like the God that Malchus understood. I mean, he would have expected. That's why he brought soldiers with him. He would have expected that Jesus and his followers would defend themselves. The expected course of action would be that they would draw swords against them. So when Peter, you know, takes the sword, well, that's expected. I don't think Malchus expected that he was going to be on the receiving end of that sword, but it would have been expected. This is what people do. This is what people who claim to be God are like. That's... That's not what happened. In fact, Jesus said, no, stop that and and, and let me get to him and laid his hand on him and healed his ear. He showed Malchus what God was really like in that moment. And so I got to thinking, because I was reading through the Gospel of John and there's at least 10 times in there where Jesus says, he says, wait, he said, What I am saying right now, I'm not saying it of my own accord. I'm saying what the Father is saying. What you're hearing, that's God. I'm here to show you what God is like. What I'm doing when I heal the sick, when I raise the dead, when I touch the leper, uh, what I'm doing, I'm not doing that on my own accord. I'm doing that because that's what I see God doing. I only do, he said this, I only do what I see God doing. What, the, what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. He was showing us. Part of what Jesus was doing here for three years was showing us that God is not like we think he is. So I got to thinking, okay, well, I, I certainly could use a paradigm shift myself. And maybe if I do, then some of my friends that are going to be with me on Sunday morning, they might need a little paradigm shift as well. Maybe we've begun to think of God as distant and unapproachable and angry. And so how do we do that? And I was thinking, well, we could just march our way through the gospel and take note of all of the times when Jesus demonstrated what God is really like. And then I realized, wait, there's a simpler way to do this. I think most of you know that the New Testament was written originally in Greek, the the books that that make up the New Testament. And uh, there's a Greek word, agape. You've probably heard that before. A Greek word for love. There are several words that can be translated by the English word love. And one of those is agape. And that one was used by the New Testament writers under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit exclusively for the kind of love that God has. So when you encounter it, you're looking at a picture of what God's love is like. In the book of 1 John, it says twice, it says, God is agape. God is love. And then, 
in 1 Corinthians 13, which I'd like you to turn to now, Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said, agape is, and then gives us a list. So if God is agape, and let me make clear that that's not all he is. God is much more than one word could ever uh, capture. It's not all he is, but he is, the Bible says, he is agape. And if Paul says agape is and then tells us what it is, that'd be a good place to go and figure out what God is really like. So let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll start reading at verse 4. The road to resurrection included Jesus showing us the Father. Verse 4, 1 Corinthians 13. Agape, or love, suffers long and is kind. Love, or agape, does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love or agape never fails. Now, let's put, let's take the word agape and let's replace that with the Father. Verse 4, the father suffers long and is kind. Is that true? How do we know? Because it says so. And because we've experienced that. Love suffers long and is kind. The father does not envy. The father does not parade himself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek his own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. The father, God, agape, never fails. Let's make our way back through that list and linger on those words for a bit and just see if we can experience our own... um, paradigm shift. First of all, it says that agape, or God, the Father, is patient. He's patient. (laughs) Have you ever felt like you've tried the patience of God? I mean, really. You ever felt like you got to that place where you, oh, this has got to be this has got to be the end of the line, you know. This certainly is the straw that breaks the camel's back. This is, you know, one time too many. No. That's not true of God. Let's let the Holy Spirit change the way we think about God. There is no point, not, you know. There's no one within the sound of my voice that's interested in taking advantage of that kind of love. None of us. So let's stop worrying about that. I'm not giving you license to try the patience of God. But I'm telling you, you cannot try the patience of God. His patience is full and free and forever. That's good to know. Hard to understand, but good to know. Goes on to say that Agape is kind. I I don't even know how to define that. I mean, I looked it up in the dictionary. It says benevolent. Okay, so what does that mean? 
I'm not sure any of us could really very well define what kindness is. But we sure know it when we see it. We sure know it when we experience it. God is kind. And I love the fact that these two are in the same phrase because, you know, if there were, and I'm not, and there isn't, but if there were a way for you to come to the end of God's patience, he would still be kind. He's he's not envious. Agape is not envious. God is not envious. That's good news. Because when you envy somebody, somebody, you want what they have. Can I just tell you, God doesn't need or want anything from you? When God approaches you, he is, he's never trying to get something for you. You and I, we don't, even know, we don't even know what that kind of a relationship is like because everybody wants something from us, even if it is, you know, uh, self-affirmation or... And, uh, you know, you can picture all the different kinds of things. But our, so our, we don't even know how to relate to somebody like that. But God doesn't want or need anything from us. He is not envious. Now, it says that he doesn't parade himself or promote himself. You know, most of us, we, we want to take credit. In fact, you know, earlier when we were singing worship songs, and I don't, this, don't get this wrong either, right? I don't begrudge the fact that at the end of every song, the last slide that we put up there has the name of the author on there. I, that's, that's totally appropriate. But you see, everybody wants to get credit. <laughs> when I do something nice for you, I'd like for you to acknowledge it. See, God isn't like that. He doesn't, that's why he can do so many wondrous things just in the background. Do you know that there are people walking around the streets of this neighborhood that are going to experience the grace and love of God today and they won't even know who it's from. And God doesn't care. He just loves them. He just loves them. Just us. He loves us. It says he's not, our love is not puffed up. Really, it literally means inflated. You ever (laughs) catch yourself inflating yourself, you know, to be seen in the best light and, you know, God doesn't do that. He doesn't have to do that. You know, I don't know why it comes to my mind, but the, the Wizard of Oz, you know, and he's, he's back to this little man with, you know, putting out this big display. You know, and, and we can imagine sometimes that God is like that, but he, he's not. He doesn't, he is so complete, so thoroughly self-sufficient that he he doesn't need to elaborate. He doesn't need to uh, extend himself in that way. It says that he doesn't behave, or, or agape does not behave rudely. You know how it is when you have, you're with, you're with that friend or that relative and you're always a little bit unsure of how they're going to behave and you're kind of getting prepared to have to, you know, make excuses for them or cover for them. You know, he's really okay. and you know, that, that kind of thing. Listen, we do that with God sometimes. 
it's like we want to, like we feel like we have to apologize for God. No. God will never, ever, ever behave in a way that you need to be ashamed of. <laughs> He's always someone to be proud of. Always someone who you can present to another who needs him without any hesitation. It says that he doesn't seek his own. God is, is not self-centered. He's not focused on himself. It says, agape is not provoked. In the old King James Version of the Bible, it said, is not easily provoked. <laughs> I think they put that in there to soften the blow. God is just flat, not mad. He's not angry. He's not provoked, period. With us. He's not angry with us. Now, look, let's be honest. God is very angry with sin. And you can read about the anger of God addressed to sin in the Bible, but never to sinners. He's not, he's not angry with you. It says he thinks no evil. Literally, that means that he isn't keeping a record of your sin. He doesn't have a spreadsheet, you know, where he's keeping track of all your iniquity. In fact, the Bible says that the God who knows everything that can be known has chosen not to know your sin. And he has, the Bible says, separated your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. You've heard me say this before. When he sees you, he does not see you in the same frame as your sin. But it goes on and says that although he is not inventorying your evil, he's not indifferent toward unrighteousness. This is important to know. We have a just and righteous God. And he is not making excuses for, he's not in denial about, he's not covering over or forgetting the fact that there is vast and great injustice and iniquity unleashed in this world. That's good to know too. Hard to imagine how God can be gracious and merciful and just at the same exact time, but he is. He's that big. You and I can't. We're one or the other. Mostly one. <laughs> He's both. It says that he does um, celebrate the truth. He, he rejoices in the truth. He'll only ever tell you the truth and he will... Um, you, so you don't have to be afraid of it. And we can learn to live in the truth. That's pretty amazing. So much of our, our life gets lived in, in some fabrication that we have designed or others have designed for us. And we know there's truth somewhere. God is truth. In fact, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It says that 
He bears all things, or agape bears all things. It literally means roofs over. He creates a refuge for us. You know how it feels when you, you've got something going on in your life and you know there's really only one person you can share that with and you go to that person and you find safety and security in their acceptance and their love? Well, that, that person, to, the, to the, the, the only person who can truly and really offer that to you is, is God. But he does. He roofs over us. He creates a refuge for us, that place we can run to and find security and safety always. It says that he, uh, he believes, or agape believes all things. That includes you. He believes in you. He believes in me. That's a remarkable thing. That thing right there, that, that, what I just said right there, that's so amazing. That ought to get you saved if you're not saved this morning. That there's a God in heaven who believes in you. That's amazing. It says that he hopes all things. He has, God has a joyful expectation over us. Joyfully expectant over you. You know, I don't know. I, look, I'll just be honest with you. They're, they're, most of the time, I imagine that God is expecting the worst from me. That's not God. He has a joyful expectation over me and you. It says that he endures all things. He, that in the Greek it's abide, okay? He abides. And, but it's not just abide, it's super abide. It has this hooper, a hoopo added to it. It's super God will be with you through thick and thin. In the darkest places, he is there with you. He will never, the Bible says, never leave you or forsake you. Never leave you or forsake you. Finally, it says, agape, love, the Father will never fail you. Everything that we've just talked about, these things will always be true. They will always be true. The ground is never going to give way from out, out, out from under your relationship with God. Never. These will always be true. So, Malchus was experiencing a different picture of God. The true picture of God. Malchus uh, walks off the pages of Scripture right after those verses we just read. So we don't know what the rest of the story would have been. But maybe we could just imagine how that might have, that encounter with Jesus and what God is really like may have changed how how he related to God, how he lived, how he experienced. But I'm wondering about you and me. We've encountered something of the truth of what God is today in his word. I'm wondering if that might not change us too. And the way that we relate to God. 
the way we understand him to be, and can I just say, even more important than that, really, is what, what other people see of how, of God and what he's really like in us and how we relate to him. To me, that's, you know, I'm not saying that you and I are, are Jesus, but we are his representatives in this world filled by the Holy Spirit so that, the Bible says, so that we could be his witnesses. We could represent him well. And just as Jesus went around and said, look, 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 let me show you what the real God is like. You and I have that same opportunity. The way we treat other people, the way we talk to them, the way we think about them, the way we live out our relationship with God in front of them. Let's allow the Lord to transform us, to have, for us to have a paradigm shift that would demonstrate to them what God is really like. Let's watch this together. I served an unapproachable God. While I, I served the high priest that served an unapproachable God. But everything changed in that one night. Everything changed in one night. I was drugged to the garden and then my ear. I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. I was there in the garden with Judas. Judas knew exactly where Jesus was going to be. And we were all there waiting for him. It was crazy that night. His disciples were with him, but I saw Jesus. I, I was very close to Jesus, and you could tell he was visibly upset. And uh, Judas kisses Jesus on the cheek, and I was standing so close that I heard Jesus call Judas friend. And that's the last thing I heard, because in a moments later, I heard nothing. I saw the flash of a blade come toward my face, and, and I felt blood streaming down. And then it got quiet. And then I got dizzy. And then Jesus, he, he touched me. Like I said, I heard all the stories about Jesus, and I've heard all the stories about how Jesus healed people with his hands. There was this one time he, he healed a person with, with dirt and spit. And so many people, he just healed them with his hands. But it wasn't his hands for me. It was the way he looked at me. It was his eyes. That's what broke me. His eyes were filled with compassion and grief and joy. And, and, when, he, and when he pulled his hand away... My ear, I mean, that night, everything I heard about that man had changed forever. They had a mock trial for him. Um, the whole night was just set up to condemn him. And he didn't say a word. He, he just felt sorry for us there was the sentencing there was there was Pilate uh, the crucifixion and then there was an earthquake and then the veil 
I was in the temple. I was in the temple when the veil was was ripped in half. Do you know what that means? I mean, even even I knew what that meant. God had invited us all in. The unapproachable God was now approachable. God was on the move.